Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Tendy Talk, presented by the BLPA and the Hockey Podcast Networks. I'm your host Joe, better known as Wash Up Goalie on social media. This week I chat with three-time Olympian and four-time world champion Hockey Canada goalie Sammy Joe Small. Did I forget to mention she's also an author? Sammy Joe released the book The Role I Played last year chronicling her journey in women's hockey. I just finished listening to the audiobook and it's great book. You need to get it if you haven't done already. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation with Sammy Joe. Thank you for uh, joining me tonight. I appreciate it. Uh, no problem. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Not not like in this whole time change thing and it being dark for a couple hours already. It's like... <laughs> I know. It seems very late right now, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, I saw a meme the other day. It was like, ah, oh, it's got to be 10 o'clock. I'm going to bed. What time is it? 6.45. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So... I'm just going to get started. Sammy Joe, thanks All right. for joining me. It's uh, a thrill to have you on as uh, a goalie who, you know, grew up watching Olympic hockey. And I, I was one of those that it didn't matter who was playing. If it was Olympic hockey on TV, I was watching it. Uh, so I, I remember watching those Nagano games and those Salt Lake City games and the Torino games. So, you know, uh, it, it's fun to, you know, be able to connect now. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I am uh, always excited to talk anything goaltending. So this is going to be awesome. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's funny because I got all my questions, you know, that, that I bulleted out, but we can't ignore your awesome Vaughn pads you've got in that picture behind you that's on your book <laughs> cover uh, because I'm currently waiting for my first set of like 
custom pads from Vaughn <laughs> waiting for them to arrive. And I'm just, uh, you know, so I, I love those. What were those look like V2s? So yes, they, I mean, at the time they were custom, those are mm-hmm. circa 2005. So they have been around for a while, but I loved the Maple Leafs on them. Yep. And um, it was something that at the time Vaughn didn't really do was to um, really change too much about the look of them, but right. they did that for me, which was really nice. And this is kind of pre uh, being able to uh, have pad wraps or anything like that. So yeah. Um, once that became possible, then I feel like the sky's the limit, but this was something that was kind of unique at the time. So I love those pads. When I was trying to decide on the um, book cover, it was really hard for me because I had so much equipment from over the years mm-hmm. that I loved and, you know, what would resonate with readers and what did I feel sort of personified that era and, um, but also what could look up kind of relatively modern on a shelf as well and not feel like it was from 20 years ago like yeah it actually is, so. well it's funny you say 20 years ago because the set I'm wearing is uh Vaughn Legacies the same style that Eddie Belfour wore in Dallas when he won the cup I'm still wearing those so awesome you know it's like I I, I love the old old patterns and it's you know you mentioned Vaughn really not you know straying from their stock graphics until recently, and when when I went to order my pads, I didn't want a custom, or I didn't want the standard graphic because I know I'm going to have them for a while. So you go with the standard graphic; it looks pretty outdated pretty quickly. And uh, so I, I was able to lean on some uh, other folks I know to pressure them to, to give me the custom graphic I want. And so cool. we're literally in the any day phase of getting them shipped out to me. So I'm pretty That's excited awesome. to see them in person. Well, I've done a lot of work recently with Warrior because my husband is sponsored by Warrior. He's a yeah. track player. And um, so I just ordered a new set of Warrior gear. Uh, and when I went to get fitted for it, um, the difference in just the technology and everything yeah. was just incredible. I mean, amongst all the lines, you know, it wasn't, it's not just Warrior, but I am excited for those to arrive because really I'm still in, um, you know, what is probably a 10 year old pad at this point point. and the, the difference in the lightness and the, um, strapping and just everything, you know, I had had to have a girl from the store help me figure out how to strap it. Yeah. You know, I, have told the story a couple of times on the podcast. I I showed up to a beer league game about an hour early. I still show up to the rink an hour early before beer league games and sitting there, locker room all by myself uh but it was a summer league game and there was a high school team getting on the ice and for just her summer camp and they only had one goalie and coach looked at me and goes hey if you want some extra shots you know come on out and I was like all right cool and I'm standing along the boards uh as he's going over a drill and the other goalie kind of looks behind he's like what's with all the straps Cause you know, each of my pad, I still have two straps that go yeah. under the boot. The pads I have when I first bought them had the toe buckle, uh, that I swapped yeah, out yeah. for, for, uh, skate laces, but he's like, what's with all the straps? He didn't even have one on his, just, you know, mm-hmm. three Velcro, uh, straps on his. And I just started laughing. So yeah, that's how we used to do it, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know working with so many young goalies now, I've had to figure out how to help them get their pads on, especially in the mm-hmm. pandemic. And um, so it has been interesting to see sort of the transition of 
you know, so, I mean, I know how it all works. It's not like yeah. I don't know how it works, but just the, 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 the difference. And, you know, thinking back to why we did things the way we did, you know, like why did we have a belt loop uh, under our skate with our toe cap showing, you know, like, yeah. why was that a thing, you know? And then obviously then the, the cap came over that, that, you know, it was this extra piece of gear. And, um, but now that you see it just as one piece, it just makes so much sense, so much well, more sense, you know? And, and when we were young, it was, you almost wanted to treat your pad as a tourniquet and cut off the circulation to your leg. You, you wanted it as tight mm-hmm. as possible. Not now these pads are just rotating willy nilly on the legs. It, it's well, the, 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 the to me, the best set of padding that I ever received was my first set of pads. Uh, we used to do skate saves. That's uh, shows my age yes, a little bit. Me but, too. Um, <laughs> when you open up your leg, you always got it on the inside of your cap, right? Yeah. And my pad only had a little thin thing of felt. Now, why we would turn our foot to expose it to the puck. I mean, it's beyond me. That just seems ridiculous, but it's what we did, right? It seemed like the smart thing to do at the time. But I got these extra plastic things from Cooper that went on the inside of your calf mm-hmm. and made all the difference. Yeah. It, you, know, you think about it years later, it's like, why would we turn this massive giant pad the other way and expose the back of your leg? Like, <laughs> I, I was playing in a pickup skate Saturday night and I just instinctively did a skate save and turned my leg over and everything. And I just Amazing. started laughing. I was like, where did that come from? Why did I do that? And mm-hmm. that, that was stupid. <laughs> hey, it's just another, another tool in your repertoire, right? You yeah. pull it out whenever you need it. Yeah, it's funny because there's a goalie. He's the Nashville e-bug, uh, Dustin Smith. He, he's on Instagram as Bones, and he's fascinated by the old style of hockey. And so he's got a vintage pair of uh, Jofa pads, brown leather pads from the 80s. And he got the old two-piece chest protector uh, and everything. With the monkey arms, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, that's not vintage to me. That's my first association set right there. Totally. And uh, we, we've gone back and forth and I told him he's got to come up to Minnesota so we can shoot some content and I can teach him proper two pad stack recovery, proper skate mm-hmm. save. Cause that's what I learned in goalie clinics when I was a kid. And he's like, yeah. that, that would be awesome. <laughs> I still teach it at my camp because I think it, there's a certain athleticism to it that you might never use it in a game, Yeah, but to actually do a proper two pad stack and, and be able to get out of it quickly yeah. it is an athletic endeavor, you know, knowing the proprioception of your limbs and where they are in space is really important to know. And it's not something that's really taught anymore. Yeah. I think when a lot of kids do the two pad stack, if they do it, they just roll over under their belly and, you know, do the push up to get up. It's like, no, you keep yourself square to the puck and, you know, yeah, take the back leg is under and the, yeah. And you, yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I still remember my goalie coach, Darren McCluskey. He was just drilled at home to us how to properly do it. And we do it over and over and over. It seemed like the whole practice sometimes we were just doing two-pad stack recovery. And- I can remember the same thing with a, a skate save where you'd have one, two, three, four as you're like coming out. And then one, two, three, four. And just like the coach counting it over and over and over and over. Yeah, it's monotonous. Yeah, it's funny some of the things we used to do in those old goalie schools. But at the same time, so much of what we did still pertains to, you know, teaching goalies today because it is very much angles and proper stance. 
you know, exactly. And something, I think a lot of it has come back now, you know, Mm -hmm. being able to, um, skate and move your body at the same time, um, being able to, uh, use your stick as an extra piece of equipment to hit the puck out of the air, eye hand coordination, all those kind of things that, um, were so normal back then. And then we're totally taken out of the game and now sort of the reaction, the necessity to be out there and to not be, you know, to react to the puck again. Yeah. I like it. I like yeah. that that's come back. I, I've been excited to see the poke check making its way back into the game. That That's a lost art. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it definitely is, ne- is necessary to come back. I love it. Yeah, it, it's, it's fun. Every once in a while, I, I go down the YouTube wormhole watching 90s goaltending, and it's just everybody just had this crazy style back then. And it, it's hard not to just get lost watching those old videos. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been talking what, like 10 minutes here and I haven't even started on my notes. <laughs> so that's usually what happens, uh, you know, when, when two goalies start talking and usually I start off asking people, you know, how did they get started in hockey? Why goalie? But you cover that in your book, the role I played. Um, so I, I want to encourage listeners, if they haven't already, read the book or get the audio book. I did that so that I could get through it in time for our interview and finished it this morning, actually. So oh, thank you. That's it, very it's, nice. it's a fantastic book. And, you know, it, it, I connected with it in many ways. Uh, the, the first is, you know, you are a student athlete and, you know, I, I played college hockey too. So I get like the whole education comes before and especially with women's hockey I think even so today there is that emphasis on the education part of it because women hockey players aren't making a living the way men can even at the minor league levels you know guys can make a living out of it whereas you know on the women's side especially when when you were playing you couldn't uh so you had to get that education um and, and you didn't you know go the easy route you decided hey I want to go to Stanford and I want to be a mechanical engineer (laughs) you know so not only do you go to one of the toughest schools in the nation but you choose a uh, field that to this day is still very male dominated (laughs) so is you know you went a really uh, cool route in my opinion you know especially you know reading the books knowing your dad was an optometrist your brother's going to school for it what drew you to mechanical engineering? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with goaltending. It's interesting. Um, I didn't know growing up what engineers did. I feel like that that term wasn't really widely thrown around in my school. You know, being from uh, Winnipeg, not too many uh, people leave Winnipeg. Most people mm-hmm. go to school at University of Manitoba or University of Winnipeg. And um, so, you know, when it came to career day, uh, you know, there probably was engineers there, but I, I guess I never really knew what they did. And uh, I started in pre-med, as I mentioned in the book. And mm-hmm. um, it, uh, you know, I, I liked it. I thought that's what smart people did. And um, it wasn't until I volunteered at a hospital that I realized that as a doctor, it is, it is your full-time job. I mean, mm-hmm. it needs to be your passion. And it really wasn't my passion. You know, I liked it, but I did, I, I, just couldn't foresee myself spending 24 hours uh, on a shift, uh, for instance. 
And it was sort of midway through my Stanford uh, career. And at Stanford, you don't really have to declare your major till after your second year. So you're allowed this kind of grace period of figuring out what you mm-hmm. like and what you want to do. And I, I took a mechanical engineering class and it was the first time that I got to use my hands to build things. And my entire life, I had um, I had broken down goalie equipment and I had uh, pieced it back together and I had sort of makeshift equipment that I had always uh, fabricated. Um, my mom made my very first pair of pads out of an old pair of corduroys that she had that she just stuffed for me um, to play street hockey with. And then with my goalie sticks, I used to take old yogurt containers and cut them in pieces and then melt them on the bottom of my goalie stick so it would last on the road. Uh, So little things like that, that I was always kind of tinkering with things. And I loved using my hands to fabricate things and be artistic. Um, Mm -hmm. And mechanical engineering kind of had that good kind of combination of the mathematical side and technical thinking, which I... um, was very strong in, but I also had this artistic side that I wanted to be creative and and create things. And it wasn't until I took my first course that I realized that this is, this is what engineers do. They make things and they get to see things from the beginning till the end and have this creativity around it. So I just, I fell in love with um, what it was and what it represented. And my, my final year at Stanford, my final project was actually upper body goaltending equipment for women. So I got to kind of come full circle with two things that I really loved. And um, the uh, upper body goalie equipment was actually uh, just made from plastics from the local plastic store in a dollar bin. But I oh, ended up wearing it. that at a world championship. So, you yeah. know, and it's funny you say it because I remember listening to something that uh, Moan Room was talking about, of, you know, even when she was going to the Tampa Bay um, camp, she was using junior equipment because that was all that fitter but she knew it didn't have the protective uh you know padding that she needed and the equipment manager is like we got to do something about this and that that was just the nature of equipment at the time for what, female for goalies not even it, just females but i think all goalies we always you know we tinkered with stuff yeah, and for we did. a lot of us you know i think our first sets of equipment came from community centers Yep, And so it wasn't for us, right? And so how can you make it kind of fit your body and your mold and the style you play? And um, I don't know, I feel like a lot of goalies are kind of tinkers that way and um, yeah. lends itself to kind of that engineering spirit. I remember talking to Eddie Belfour about it. I mean, he's one of the most famous ones of always working on his mm-hmm. equipment to only sharpen his own skates. And when I talked to him, his son Dane was on and he, you know, said, yeah, they would be taking pads apart at home and everything else. He said the difference was, you know, when Ed would get a pair, he'd go, yeah, I can feel a shutout in these pads. And Dane said, I've never felt a shutout in pads. I just hope I can make a save. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah, well, and Eddie went on to become a huge car guy and it makes sense because yeah. you're still kind of tinkering with things, you know, trying to get the most out of a product. Well, and look at how many goalies are car guys too i mean you got mike mckenna um uh craig anderson um there's a whole host of them that yeah they they, they like to tinker and if i'm not a car guy but what do i do around the house i tinker around the house i'm always working on a project exactly Um, we all have things that we're doing or there's this like artsy side to some goalies too that um tend to just want to like create the cool pads or make the cool mask or it mm kind of 
gravitates. I think a lot of people are kind of drawn to the position because you get to have that creativity about. Yeah, well, we definitely do have that creative side of the brain working. Um, I think we have too much time on our hands. Yeah, too too much time. As pucks at the other end, we're always thinking about what are we going to do next. Um, but getting back to the mechanical engineering, you said some stuff that you know really hits home because I have a fourteen year old daughter. She very artistic, phenomenal artist. But ever since she was little, she always liked to build things. And her favorite cartoon was uh, Tinkerbell. The Tinker, you know, she was a Tinker Fairy. Yeah. You know, we've been saying for years you know, you're going to wind up being a mechanical engineer. And she's like, well, what's that? And we try to explain it to her. And she's like, eh, I don't know. But even now that she's in high school and, you know, some of the classes they have, it's actually called design make. Uh, and she's like taking that where they're learning about 3D printers and stuff like that. And it's like that. Yeah, the whole, maker, just... the whole maker culture makes it sound a lot cooler. Yeah. I feel like when I, you know, growing up, what did I think an engineer did? I don't know. I, I thought they built bridges, I guess. I don't know. It was... Yeah. It wasn't something within my realm, mm-hmm. um, but I, I do feel like they're doing a better job now of, uh, first of all, introducing it to students in general, uh, but specifically getting uh, women and girls involved in it, uh, because I think that it lends itself to a whole different kind of way of thinking outside the box. And mm-hmm. many of my peers at Stanford didn't necessarily end up as full-time mechanical engineers. They ended up in different professions. But what it does is it really teaches you to think about a a problem from the start to the end and think about various different solutions and how to help others um, in the issues and problems that they have and um, never really get stuck uh, on one idea or one solution. But, you know, you're always trying to come up with new things. It's like goaltending. You you have to teach uh, every goalie that comes across your path a different way because they have a different body they have different strength different weaknesses and you have to think about ways to tell them in uh, different ways to share the same information and mm-hmm. I think that comes from my engineering background so I'm yeah. glad that she, she likes that kind of stuff I think a lot of people love it they just don't know that that can be a real job yeah and I've I've been not just me but me and my wife we've been trying to foster it too you know as we've been doing all these projects around the house during the uh pandemic you know she she was helping out and you know we were talking we're like you need some of your own tools so we took her and she got her own drill and like she loved it it's like first awesome. thing you got to do when you get your own tools is put your name on it and she's like well why is that it's like well have you met your papa he if he sees a tool that he thinks is useful and there's not a name on it he's going to claim it as his own uh and she's like oh so as soon as we got home she got the sharpie <laughs> out wrote, wrote her name on it and it's like and i'll probably be using it too so you know, whenever I go to the hardware store, I look around, okay, what, what tool can I add to her tool bag now? Uh, so that's we're, awesome. we're slowly building up her, her tools at the same time. And uh, I, I try and get her to help me with projects when, when she can. And well, and I, I, I just think it's a, such a great activity for, well, parents and kids, but also, mm-hmm. you know, you're just, you're so engrossed in something and whether you're painting, um, you know, a canvas or you're involved in a, uh, in a project it's just this, like, I don't know. It's all, I don't want to say it's a mindless activity because it's, it can create so much in your brain. It allows you to have that, um, 
that balance in your life that uh, allows your brain to just kind of wander and think about other things and and appreciate uh, how things are made and uh, and the amount of work and effort that goes into every single product and every mm-hmm. single thing. My favorite times um, as a goalie over the years um, has been the times that I've been able to go to the manufacturers and um, be able to go into the workplace where they are making all of the stuff. Like I just yeah. feel like in a candy store, you know, I just love it so much. Yeah. I had to laugh. She just texted me. Are you talking about me? Cause her bedroom's right next to my office. <laughs> so she can hear me and say, yep, yep. I am. Tell her, yeah. She's the next Rosie Revere, the engineer, right? Yes, exactly. Um, you know, like I said, we're, we're definitely trying to foster it as much as we can because there's a need, you know, for skilled, you know, people. Well, and there's also a need to, um, encourage, uh, you know, when you see a passion in a young child to yeah. allow that to flourish and to help them realize that there's so many amazing things they can do. So yeah, tell your I, daughter that there is lots of uh, female engineers out there that are doing some incredible things in the world. One of the awesome things we have here in Minnesota is our Fox affiliate. When we're not in a pandemic, they have, uh, they call it girls in science at our science museum. It's a one day deal and they, they have all kinds of stuff. And some of it's, you know, um, engineering, some of it's robotics, some of it's weather related, and you know, it's just come in, experience it all. Um, Abbott Laboratories, they come with a couple pig hearts and they let the kids pick up these pig hearts and play with them. And that's kind of fun to see the gross looks on the faces, but it's really fun to go there and just see the whole museum just filled with girls. And then they, uh, last time we went, they brought in Kate, the chemist from the University of Tech. I think she's with the University of Texas in Austin. And she's okay. got some great books out on, you know, um, science and whatnot, but she's very much a proponent of girls and science. And so she has oh, that's awesome. Really we have a, we have a book stuff. called Ada, Ada Twist Scientist that are, we read to our daughter. So oh, who knows what they end up becoming, but yeah, yeah, all you can do is expose them to it. And I think that's really great that you guys are doing that. Yeah. And so we're pushing her, well, not pushing her to be, but, you know, fostering that uh, uh, passion of hers. And then my son, he's a year younger and he came home, I think it was in the third grade. He goes, I'm going to be an aerospace engineer. And I went, can you tell me what an aerospace engineer does? And he could. And I was like, okay, you just might. And now he's in eighth grade and he's taken that design make class and he just 3D printed and saber jet. Like he took the time to model it up on the computer, everything else. I was like, this just might happen. I was like, all right, yeah. I, I don't, maybe I don't have to worry about my retirement because he's going to be able to take care of me. <laughs> um, you know, so the, the other interesting thing is, you know, you're, you're going into engineering. It's a male dominated field. Um, but there is that push to really get girls, you know, interested, not just in engineering, but science, you know, what advice do you have for girls that are kind of considering you know, those STEM fields, but maybe are a little apprehensive because there's not many girls in those classes, you know, not, not, not people that look like them per se. Right. Um, you know, what's interesting about Stanford was even at the time when I went to school in the nineties, um, there was a lot of women. So I, um, you know, I never really got the sense that it was male dominated until mm-hmm. it came time uh, to be in the workforce. And then obviously it was different, but I think the, the great thing about being at Stanford and maybe even specifically the engineering that I was in, which was product design, which was within mechanical engineering has a lot 
lot more component to it. So maybe lent itself more uh, women were attracted to it uh, for certain reasons. Um, but, you know, I, I, so I never felt excluded. And I think that that's, that's really important. Um, but, you know, wherever, uh, wherever somebody grows up in North America, there are some great programs for women in science, women in engineering, women in tech. And I think it's really important to reach out to others that are like-minded and that goes for whatever you're interested in. Um, I read a great book uh, by Tim Ferriss, who wrote the four hour work week. And um, one of the, the best things that came out of that book was, you know, whatever you are interested in or whatever you're passionate about um, to join the association. Now that is more for adults, but mm -hmm. um, as kids, you know, join a club who join something that you get to be around other people that have the same passions as you, because that's going to inherently foster the conversation. That's going to push you in directions you never knew existed. Um, and that's really been one of the things that it was the huge takeaway for me from that book was there is so many other people like you out there and there's so many, um, you know, clubs and, uh, professions that, um, you know, might not seem like they are for people like you, but, if you think it, then there must be others like you out there that are thinking the same thing. So, you know, try to find them. And as parents, I think it's up to us too to, to really help with that journey and with that um, ability to uh, allow the kids to, you know, find what is their passion, but support them in their endeavors, just like what you, you guys are doing with your kids. And um, so for young girls that are interested in uh, anything within the, the STEM world, I would say that there is, there is no limit that you can achieve uh, so many great things. Um, but the great thing about engineering and science is that it is a team and it is like being, a, you know, playing hockey. It, it's like a, being a, a part of this amazing team and each person in that team brings a different, um, well, plays a different role, but yep. brings this different background and has uh, different knowledge. And that's the great thing about science and technology is that it just is never ending. And you're on this continuous uh, pursuit of knowledge that, um, you know, even uh, for me, for the next 20, 30, 40 years, who knows how long I'm going to be alive for, but um, there just is, you can always learn. And that's the fun thing about it. So yep. never yep. think it isn't for you. Yeah, well, I, I, I was just putting two and two together, and I, I definitely think my daughter's going to wind up going down that route because, like you, she's got the dual first name. You know, you're Sammy Joe, she's Gertie Bell, so it's like, okay, nice. like <laughs> you, you, you got to have the, uh, the. She's the, destined. I love yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, in fact, I remember when I was coaching high school hockey at the time she was born, and I came back for her first practice after she was born, and the other coaches go, well, you know, what, what did you name her? So Gertie Bell Jean. And the one looks at me and goes, well, that's just a country star waiting to happen. <laughs> I know. Everybody thinks I'm from like deep south in Texas or something. <laughs> no, it's just the deep south of Canada. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, well, let's talk some hockey now. And, and before we go into all of the Olympic stuff and all of that, you scored a goal. I mean, when you talk about things goalies want to do, we want to win championships and everything else, but deep down, we all want to score a goal. Uh, that's got to be one of your top bragging points, doesn't it? Well, it's interesting because most people don't know, you know, and it wasn't really until I wrote this book that a lot of people found out that I scored a goal. 
Um, but when, you know, you play a sport that is, um, you really are toiling away in obscurity. It's not like our games are on uh, television and um, even our, our club team championships, the top players in the world, um, there wasn't social media back then. Mm -hmm. There wasn't, you know, so the people that were at the game obviously knew my teammates knew, um, but that dissipates over time, over years and uh, new players come into the game that don't know. And so most people uh, actually have had no idea. Um, and it's been on my bio, but I don't know if people uh, really kind of honed in on that, uh, just how different that was for a goalie to do. Yeah. Um, and especially in women's hockey, that it was, uh, I mean, who knows if that's ever happened before, we don't really have stats to prove or disprove it. So I can say it's the only one, but I <laughs> might not be the case. Who knows? So, but yes, I was very fortunate to uh, have sort of the stars align. You know, it, that, that's the thing with uh, most goalies is that we're just not often placed in that situation. And then right. when we are placed in that situation for the right players to be in the right spots on the ice and for that one time, the puck to go right down the middle of the ice. Um, so I just, I combination of working on my shot a lot, uh, a, along with a lot of luck. Yeah. I mean, look at any goalie when they get the chance, they're, they're shooting that puck back and forth to each other. When everybody's off to the side, we're just always, always mm -hmm. when we get that one, one shot, we, we hope we can do it. Uh, well, and if you can remember back in the day too, I mean, your shot was always the best when you got a new stick, yeah. right? And then it slowly got worse throughout yeah. the season as that stick, because uh, there are wood sticks that got heavier and it got expanded. And so it also was at the start of a season. So had that same opportunity happen, maybe midway through <laughs> the season, you don't have as strong a shot, you know, your stick is whippier and you, it's not like today where you um, can just go in you know, get another stick. And, uh, that did not happen to us back in the day. No, no, it didn't, you know, but so, so you score the goal, but people are going to associate you more with being a three-time Olympian. You know, it was, uh, now, you know, the very first women's Olympic, uh, appearance and then Salt Lake city. And I'm gonna, not going to lie, a little heartbroken still about that loss of the Americans. Uh, <laughs> and then Torino, but two of those three, Olympics, you were the number three goalie. And at that time, the third goalie didn't get a medal. Um, how, what's the, what are those emotions? I mean, you're happy, you, you touched on a little bit in the book, you're happy for the team, but there's got to be some kind of letdown. E even though the team won, there, there's got to be some kind of deeper feeling of, the, man, that sucks. You're right. I mean, I talk a lot about this in my presentations and I now work uh, full-time as a professional speaker. And that's the real crux of my presentation is that um, we're all placed in these situations that just kind of suck sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it's true. It's um, it's obviously both situations were different. Uh, Nagano was a different experience because I was a rookie on the team. And so while it, it was hard to not receive a medal because I didn't really know that would be happening. There wasn't really the same type of disappointment for months and months after it was, you know, I never, I, I didn't feel like I got cut from the team in Nagano. Um, 
I felt like I was lucky enough to get into a third goalie position. And Mm -hmm. so depending on where you're at in your career, it's different. And then come Torino, when I was wanting to be in a different position in, you know, either the starter or the backup and uh, relegated up to the stands, that, that was really difficult. And when I, when our team won and I looked up and, um, you know, we had won the gold medal and I rushed down to the ice to be with my teammates. And obviously in the celebration, uh, you know, you get swept away in it and you get, you're just so excited, but then I had to go into the player's box and watch them receive their medals. And it was really at that moment that you just, your, your heart sinks. And I think all of us have been in situations like that in our lives where you just want it to be different. And, um, you just, it is such a normal, uh, natural human reaction for, uh, you to want your team to not possibly go on without you, for you yep. to want your family to not possibly go on without you, for your workplace to not possibly go on without you. But the reality is that they do and people's mm-hmm. lives move on and um, they won a gold medal on that ice uh, without me on the ice. And I think that's what was hard is that, you know, realizing that my role was different and feeling like I was supposed to learn this amazing lesson through it all. And I, I just didn't, it was just, it was just difficult and hard. And so I talk about that in my presentations that it's okay to acknowledge that. And it's okay to, to feel that. And I think it's important. You feel it. You don't just kind of sweep it under the rug. Um, but there comes a time where you just, you have to move on and you have to realize that you did play a role and that your role was different than you anticipated, but that we are all placed in these roles that are not anticipated Um, however, we always get to choose the role we play, or we always get, we don't always get to choose the role we play, but we always get to choose how we play it. And, um, so despite all those feelings, you know, in the end, I was proud of how I played my role. I was proud of how I supported my teammates. And, um, like I said, I wanted to play, uh, but I think what resonates is, um, that vulnerability that we all experience in those moments. And um, you're right. It wasn't easy, but I think in the end, it uh, certainly gave me a lot of um, lessons and a lot of empathy for others that are going through uh, difficult situations, much more difficult than um, simply watching your teammates on the ice. And since then you've lobbied to get it so that those, you know, third string goalies, they, they now do get that medal. Um, because they're very much a part of that team, um, you know, as the starter is, which is awesome. Well, yeah, at the time, the men's and women's um, roster size was different. So that's the reasoning why it happened was that the IIHF uh, felt like women's hockey uh, didn't have the injuries that men's hockey had, so didn't require the roster size. And um so anyways, there, I mean, there's always these different excuses. There's not enough room in the um, village for more roster. So men's was always at 23 and ours was at 20. And I was the, you know, when I was the third goalie, the 21st person. Um, however, uh, now the roster sizes are even. So in Vancouver, the first year uh, that I wasn't on the team, uh, the roster size up to 21. So at least the backup goalie, the third goalie could get a medal. Mm-hmm. And now um, I'm, you know, pleased to see that uh, men's and women's hockey are treated equally, at least on an international stage when it comes to numbers and um, that the IHF realizes that, you know, we play just as hard, put mo- just as much work and effort into uh, being there uh, as the men do and, and deserve that same level of respect. Well, I, 
we look at the last Winter Olympics and I don't think it's an argument that women's gold medal was the most exciting hockey game played at the Olympics. And it, it definitely got the TV ratings to boot. Well, and know. I think, you know, in Pyeongchang, the NHLers were not there. So it certainly was the biggest draw. Yeah. Uh, but even in Sochi, when the NHLers were there, that game was still the most exciting game. I mean, I know that for you and I, we yeah. have different feelings on both those games, but um, regardless of the outcome, yeah, the women's game was incredible. just, I mean, both of those games are, are two of the most exciting sporting events, regardless of if it's women or men playing that I yep. have ever yep. watched. So um, that's testament to, uh, well, those two teams, but also to women's hockey as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we talk about your first Olympics and your third Olympics not receiving a medal, but your second Olympics, you did, and it was a gold medal. Um, you know, in the book, you, you, you write about after uh, Nagano, your mom, you know, trying to comfort you, said, oh, we'll, we'll get you a medal. Well, you went out and you got that medal. How there had to be some extra emotion when, when they place that medal around your neck. Cause it wasn't just that medal. There had to be that feeling of, okay, now I got my medal. Yeah. I mean, you, you would think, yes. Um, you're right that it, um, you know, it felt like a long time coming, but I think what the medal really did um, is it made me really realize that it wasn't about the medal. Mm-hmm. Um, that it was, it really was about being proud of the work and effort that you put in. And, um, uh, our, one of our coaches, Wally Kozak, um, wrote a note to Haley Wickenheiser after, uh, we lost in, I think it was in Nagano or maybe one of the world championships, but he, he basically wrote a note to her that she kept in her wallet for years. And it says something to the effect of if, you're not enough with the med- with the gold medal, then you'll never, or if you're not enough without a gold medal, you'll never be enough with a gold medal. And I think as athletes, we tend to place a lot of emphasis on the accomplishment, on that success, on that gold medal at the end. But that, is, that is a reality that it is, um, you know, it is in the end, not about that medal. It's about having that balance in your life to be able to appreciate all of the other things that go into it, all of the relationships that you're building, the situations that you're in and knowing that you put in the work and the effort. And I think ultimately, you know, when I was standing on that blue line, receiving the medal, two things really stood out for me. One, first off, I mean, I didn't play that final, so that's going to change my feelings of, of the medal as well. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's different as a goalie when you don't necessarily play. Um, But even, you know, I think back to my first world championship, Uh, when I did play in the final and we won uh, the gold medal. Um, I, to me, I didn't think about medal around my neck. What I, what I really loved about it was looking down the line and seeing some of my best friends have their dream come true in front of me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that that is what made our team so strong is that you were constantly thinking about the other people around you. And um, when I, even now, 20 years later, when I look at the gold medal from, well, any of them, uh, but from that Olympics in particular, I, you know, you don't think about the games, but you think about the people, you think about the coaches, you think about all of those people in minor hockey that helped you get there. Um, And you you think more about the situations and the moments than you do actually about um, the medal. It's more about what it represents. So, um, you know, I, I talk a lot about that in my speeches that 
we won a, a, a volleyball provincial title when I was in grade 12. And we had this culmination of four years and we ended up winning the big championship with some of my best friends at school. And those feelings are the same. I mean, the feelings of winning mm-hmm. a gold medal at the Olympics are the exact same. People always ask me, what is like to, what does it feel like to win a gold medal? Um, and anything you put your heart and soul into, um, in the end, if you, if you are successful, those feelings are exactly the same. The only difference is that people, when, you know, talk about this, win 20 years later. So you get to yeah. reminisce it a lot more um, than you would say a high school title, but there there's, there's no more sense of jubilation. It just is excitement. And yeah, there's um, more video footage of it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have to talk about it years later. What you're saying makes so much sense. Cause when I was in high school, rather than making us read the classics that they knew we were just going to read the cliff notes for anyway, they wanted us to actually read a book. So they made us read Phil Jackson's book, sacred hoops. And in the book, you know, he says, you know, talking about championships, he says, it's not the destination, it's the journey that matters. It, you know, and what you're saying is very much along the same lines is the championship, the gold medal, that's, that's the destination. But what you remember most is everything that it took to get there. Right. Uh, and why ultimately do we have our kids even play sport? You know, yeah. it's for all of those lessons along the way. And those can be learnt um, on your backyard rinks and those can be learnt on the Olympic stage. Um, so it, uh, it, it the, yeah, it just is to me, uh, we, I was just fortunate to get to do it in front of the world. Um, but the memories that I have really about are about the people and the amazing journeys we got to take together. Now you mentioned as you're standing there getting the medal, looking at your friends, you're thinking about all the people that helped you get to that point. Um, in in your book, you, you talk about your brother quite a bit and how you both had aspirations of being Olympic athletes, and he came close. There had to be thoughts of him as you were getting that medal. Um, what were those thoughts, and what was his reaction the first time you actually got to see the medal in person? Well, the, um, in the book, I talk about my brother being a swimmer and um, growing up, I grew up in a swimming family. And so, um, he was actually, uh, at the Salt Lake city games, uh, dressed in a, um, red swimsuit with a Canada flag draped around his neck, uh, in this regalia. So he was the one running up and down the stairs, uh, leading the, the fans in chants. And he was, you know, the real cheerleader during the game. So what was my first thought when I looked up at him is there he is standing in, a speedo <laughs> <laughs> in the hockey rink. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, I guess it's, it's just perspective. It is, um, my family has always, uh, been a huge support to me and my mm-hmm. brother has always been somebody that I have had this unique relationship with in that I have wanted to do everything he does. I mean, I, I have always idolized him in a way that has made me want to follow in his footsteps. But it also has meant that um, uh, he's really the only one that um, I feel like I can share those huge experiences with and make really jealous. <laughs> so. I think one of the things that having that medal um, made me for the first time really see our roles reversed that, Mm -hmm. you know, there he was suddenly cheering for me and, you know, a full lifetime of looking up to him and now having that sort of 
be different was really was um was really special you know it, it you never really stop to think of the love you have for I mean, it, uh, as a kid, that's not something that you really think about, right? It's what mm-hmm. your your parents are always thinking about, but you are not. Right. Um, but for him to take the time to be there for the entire time in Salt Lake City and um, and to just be the biggest Sammy fan uh, that <laughs> existed was really special to me. And to be able to share in that moment afterwards uh, with him was uh, something really special. And, you know, somebody that really got it too, that mm-hmm. understood me in that situation and know how hard the situation was as well despite the fact that we had this gold medal and so I didn't necessarily have the same feelings as my teammates because you know when you don't necessarily when you don't play in the final it is different and um so I think he got that and understood that and was able to relay that to other people as well yeah and it's interesting you talked about not playing and one of the things that really connected with me in the book and it was about midway through and the title of it was like it just hit me of the role I played. Um, you know, at those times you were the backup goalie. You, you had, you had your chance at the world championships and you were the starter, but at the Olympics, you were a backup goalie. And for me, that was my college career. I wasn't just a backup goalie. I was a division three JV third string goalie. Um, right. but I, I still remember the first practice freshman year after tryouts and our coach came out and he said, look, you guys all are here to play a role and we need to be successful. We all need you to play that role to the best of your ability. He said, you're all coming from being top line players, starting goalies. Some of you now have to be third, fourth line players and backup goalies. I knew (laughs) without, you know, waiting for the first game to see the depth chart where I was. Mm -hmm. And so I embraced that role. Was it easy? No. You know, one of the things I I remember in your book too, is you talked about not starting one of the games you wanted to in in that, that feeling that goalies, they might not admit it, but we've all had that feeling of, I want the team to win the game, but I don't want the starter to get the shutout. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a very real feeling of many backup goaltenders we want to support our team. We want the best, but we want a little bit of pain at the same time. Cause it's not us. Like uh, a seven, six game. For yeah, it, yeah, exactly. You know, well, that's just a regular beer league game for me these days. <laughs> uh, but, but it's like, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of honesty there that I think a lot of goalies, if you ask them, you know, to their face, they're going to deny it, but that's the truth. You know, we want to. Yeah. And I think that goes, them. you know, beyond goaltending to every position within the game, you know, like Mm -hmm. you, you so badly want to make the team, then you make the team as a forward, for instance, and you're on the fourth line. Well, then you want to be on the third line and you want to play more shifts. Right. But then you get on the third line and you're thinking I should be on one of the top lines. Then you want, you think you should be on the power play. And then when you're on the power play, you're like, well, I'm not, I'm not taking the shootout final shot. You know, everybody has these aspirations. And, you know, I think that, um, as goalies, we are put in those situations way more often, but I, what's interesting in talking to other goalies is that most of us have been in all the situations, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, whether you're the third string goalie D three, well, maybe in high school, you're the starting goaltender in your team and you're mm-hmm. the one that's relied on. So 
I think what is unique about goaltenders is that ability to understand all the other positions and to still support, even though inside you, you might have this fire inside you, or you might feel a certain way, you know what it was like to be in that other position. So you know what it was like to be the starter, mm-hmm. you know what they need. And um, I think we have a very good understanding of the ability to compartmentalize and to say to ourselves that, you know, you can deal with those feelings later. uh, But for that day, for that time, it's important to be there for your team. Like you said, it's not always easy. But I think that that's, um, that's not just uh, relegated to goaltending that goes for, you know, people in the workforce that are, you know, wanting to give that presentation or not feeling like they got the pat on the shoulder at work or whatever it is. Um, I think that's a really real emotion. And that's why I wanted to talk about it in the book and not candy coat over it because we you feel it. And so how do you deal with those feelings? And that's what I really wanted to talk about in the book. Yeah, exactly. It's it's okay to feel it, but what, what do you do with that feeling? You know, the, the old uh, water boy, Bobby Boucher, take it and make it your tackling fuel, you know, let that be what burns that passion to be better. And that that's what I tried to do. And, you know, I, I look at my college career that there were times where it looked like, okay, next year I might get a shot. And then we had some, you know, younger goalies come in or, you know, come over from junior hockey. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I was talking to one of the other boys that I came in with and, you know, he talks about the, the, his situation, his high school career was ended in the state playoffs by a fellow named Dave Rogalski, who then two years later, after playing junior hockey came to our school and ended his college career. Cause he stole his oh, spot. And now, yeah. now Dave is a Stanley cup champion. At, Cause he was the uh, developmental goalie coach with St. Louis when they won. And now he's the, um, New Jersey Devils goalie coach and it's like we would never thought back then that that's what Dave would be doing now but it was like yeah you have these goals and then somebody just comes by and they're they're just better than you and they they take that spot and it's how how do you respond to that Mm -hmm. Um, and what lessons can you draw from that too you know like what what amazing things that did you learn that you now can impart as a father, you know, things like that, that you don't think about at the time, but that you now can really understand and empathize with other people. That's so true. You know, my son just had baseball tryouts for, you know, they they have the tryouts in the fall for the spring league team and he didn't make the team and he was feeling down. It's like, Hey, I've been there. Like, you know, I I feel bad for you, but you know, I may, I think uh, to my wife, I, maybe it looked like I was a little cold to him, but I was like, no, he's going to be fine. This is what's going to fuel him over the winter. You know, he's going to be asking, go to the batting cage. He's going to get better. And, you know. Yeah. And as parents, we can't always make it better. You know, they, you have to go through tough things like this as kids uh, to really get that fuel sometimes. Yeah. I I remember one coach who uh, kept me and he goes, prove me wrong. Mm-hmm. best thing you can do prove me wrong I want to be proved wrong is what he told me and I, I sure I went out there and I proved him wrong and at the end of the season he said so you know and, and, and that was good, a good right? feeling yeah, that's yeah. Awesome. um mm-hmm. you know th- there are some perks though to being the backup goalie in my opinion and that we we truly let to get to let our personalities out and not worry about it um <laughs> there's the one part that the book where you talk about, you know, wearing warmer clothing under your equipment because it was a colder rink. And then I, I think you had a hooded sweatshirt on and all of a sudden 
the coach is looking at you, you say get in the game you're like oh no you know mm-hmm. but, but those are kind of those things you know when people think of goalies I think that those are the things they think of is you know when they <laughs> yeah do those kinds of things um I remember well, the, tough, the toughest thing with team Canada was that we um you know, it's kind of a misnomer to say that there's a number one goalie because really the number one goalie is simply the goalie that plays the last game of the season. So up until then, uh, for the entire season, uh, whether there's two or three goalies, you are getting as just as much ice time as those other goalies. So mm-hmm. um, there, you're kind of always on and you don't ever really know you're going to be the backup. Uh, you know, other might, others might think it, but you're in that position because you think you can be the number one goalie. So it really isn't until the absolute final game. The NHL season is underway, and DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL, has an unbelievable offer to celebrate the greatest sport on ice. New customers can bet just $1 on any NHL game and win $100 in free bets if either team scores a goal. Doesn't matter if it's a one-time clapper or a deft deflection. However they light the lamp, you win. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contest. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN. Throw down $1 on any NHL game and win 100 in free bets if either team scores a goal. This week, one puck in the net nets you a big win with promo code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL. Remember, you must be 21 or older in New Jersey, Indiana, and Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Have a gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Um, and it wasn't, I would say, until... Probably the 2007 year, I was the third goalie after the Olympics in that world championship year. We had the worlds in Winnipeg, uh, which is where I'm from. And it was the first time leading into a championship that I had been told uh, prior. So that was really the first time that I felt like, hey, all the pressure is off. Like, I don't, what can I do except for, you know, be there for my teammates. And um, looking back at my career, I wish I had more moments like that where I just was, you know, didn't have to worry about it because, uh, on my club team, um, with the Toronto arrows, uh, we had this coach that he, uh, played sort of a fair system. Mm -hmm. So we just alternated every game. And so every other game I knew I wasn't playing. Whereas with team Canada, you did not know that sometimes you didn't know that until like right before the game. Um, but so for those games, you know, sometimes I had snacks in my glove or, you know, you just knew that you weren't getting into the game. So you can get your nice warm clothes on and you just hope that the goalie doesn't get pulled, which rarely happens. So my, my, <laughs> coach, my coach caught me once in college, we would uh, get box lunches delivered to the locker room between periods. So I stuffed like <laughs> two or three sandwiches in the you know top part of my breezers we were yeah. back out and he caught me in the corner eating a ham sandwich. He goes, what do you got in there? And I was like, I got a sandwich. He goes, did you bring extras? And I go, yeah. He goes, can I have one? I'm kind of hungry. <laughs> I, I have um yeah 
I often would have between periods have somebody go get me like a Diet Coke or something like some caffeine yeah. or a tea or something, which is not normally something that would be in a dressing room. But yeah. I always felt like the games as a backup. And maybe you felt this way that the, the day is just so long. Like, yeah. I, you know, it's just a lot of time and you're in your gear for a lot of time. And, um, mm-hmm. and also with the national team, we have this like eating schedule that includes like a full pregame meal and then a full po- postgame meal, assuming you've played three hard periods of hockey. Well, you're the backup goalie. You haven't even like touched the ice here. You are just eating the whole day. Yeah. And, and it's not just eating, but it's like carbo load eating on top of it. <laughs> and you're doing nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like no no wonder I'm gaining weight during the season instead of mm-hmm. losing weight like the rest of the team. Uh, with the national team, if you so with it, that was with like uh, my club team, but with the national team, if you were not playing afterwards, you had to do while everybody else was cooling down, you had to do an actual workout like bike sprints or something. Oh, and that yeah. was the worst because you had to do it on your own and you had to replicate what a game would be like and. I get why they did it, but it just sucked yeah. because it was always like 11 o'clock at night and yeah. you've just done nothing all day. And, <laughs> but it was one of those things you just had to do. Yeah. But those are also things you look back on and, you know, I, I know myself, I, I miss it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and I, I've, I've talked to some other guys I played with and it's like, I, I don't necessarily miss the games and all of that. It's, I just miss the team aspect of it. And part mm-hmm. of that is those crazy workouts and feeling like you just want to throw up and pass out, but it's like, you know, those are the things you miss. And I, I well, you're doing it together, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think those are the things that as a, now an adult in the fitness world and in rec hockey now, you know, I try to duplicate and I found some great rec hockey teams that, um, you know, are really close and have developed good friendships, which, you know, that's, that's really what sport is all about. And yeah. you know, it's finding those um, adult rec fitness classes that can duplicate some of those, um, you know, you find those friendships where people rely on you to be there and um, it makes it a little bit uh, easier to get through, but you know, nothing will duplicate what it was like to play elite hockey, but uh, certainly some of the best moments can um, still be had still in our adult years. Absolutely. Years Absolutely. You know, it, it, and that's a, to, not to transition, but that, that's so true. You know, I, you talk about relying, you know, in adult hockey as a goalie, you're relied on the most because it's like they're the hardest to find. So if, if, if a team finds a good, reliable goalie, they're like, all right, here you go. And well, I tell young uh, kids that are getting into it and I tell their parents that, yeah, it's going to be expensive until they're, they turn 17 or 18. But once you start playing beer league hockey, at least here in Canada, goalies never have to pay. So yeah. you pretty much, yeah, have free hockey for the rest of your life. So this Same is the position here. to be in. Same here. That's why when it's my turn to bring beer, I always uh, get something a little bit nicer than the cheap beer the guys bring. And in fact, <laughs> yeah. I, br- I brought beer last night and I brought something nice and they're all going, man, that, this is better than what we normally have is yeah. Like, yeah. But don't, don't make me bring it every week. Cause I did, I do splurge a little bit there mm-hmm. to, to bring them something good for after the game. Cause I'm, I'm a beer snob, so I don't want the cheap stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I, I think when we look at that role you played, um, 
Trailblazer should be part of that title too, because you played in a time where there weren't as many girls teams, you, you know, as you mentioned, Ringette is uh, still big in Canada. Um, but you, you were playing on boys teams to play at that higher level. Um, you know, you played on in some of the early women's professional leagues, you helped organize the CWHL looking back does the magnitude of your role in growing women's hockey, does it ever hit you and you think of, you know, what you've been able to accomplish? Well, that's very nice. Thank you. Um, I think, um, you know, when I think back of who are, you know, the trailblazers and the pioneers of our game, a lot of them never got to play. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of them were were kicked out of the game or told they couldn't play, um, you know, played on backyard rinks or, um, you know, perhaps found out they were a girl. Um, and there's just, there's so many stories like that. So when I think of my career, I feel so incredibly fortunate that I came through at a time um, when these pioneers and trailblazers had created this path that allowed me to go to the Olympic games and play hockey. Um, you know, had I come five years prior, um, that wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have, you know, I would have been, um, I wouldn't have been the right age coming through it. I would have probably already been into a job or, or whatever. Um, I, you know, I went to school in California thinking I was never going to play hockey again. Um, you know, simply play beer league hockey. Uh, I had no aspirations of, of playing for the national team or going to the Olympics. Cause that wasn't something we could dream about. So, you know, to all those women and men that helped create that path and that future, they're the ones that I think all of women's hockey should be um, so thankful for, but whose names are really forgotten in history. So I think what's, you know, what my generation of women uh, did in the game uh, was really stand on their shoulders and allow the world to see that women could play and that women had a passion for the game. Um, so do I think that that is trailblazing? Um, no, I think that's simply, you know, taking the torch and keeping it moving and keeping it growing. And when it came time to helping start the Canadian Women's Hockey League and really taking one of the, the central leadership roles in it, I just felt like I had this ability and I had the time and um, part of it was selfish. I wanted I wanted to keep playing. I wanted to play in this amazing league. And so to me, I think, you know, I, I have come from a, a family of volunteerism. I think that that's, it's always been very important. You know, anything, any team I've ever played on, um, you know, my, my parents were part of the, you know, uh, doing the bake sales or selling the equipment or whatever it was, they were always, you know, front and center doing that stuff. So they taught us to do that. Um, and I, I felt like it was, um, I always had this motto that if you're going to complain about something, you may as well you, you, you have to change it. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't just sit back and complain that things are not the way you want them to be. You have to work to make them the way that is best for everyone. And, um, I complained a lot. (laughs) So (laughs) I figured that if I'm going to be the one complaining, then I should put the work in and just see how hard it is and, uh, be that person that helps with the administration to, to make it work for everybody. But, yeah, I um, am very proud of the role that I played within professional hockey and getting sort of women's hockey to that next level and uh, allowing myself and so many women of my generation sort of a, a place to play. 
Um, but actually by no means did it alone. And uh, I, there was so many other people in this area that helped, but also around the world that grew mm-hmm. it in their areas. And um, I just feel like I came through uh, hockey at a time, um, just this incredible time where we could take women's hot, we could take hockey in whatever direction we wanted. Mm-hmm. And I saw it from its infancy all the way up to my first paycheck in professional hockey. And so I really had this kind of full circle um, and just feel so fortunate. I, I think what is going on right now in, in women's professional hockey, it, it's hard because now it's a business. Now mm-hmm. it is at that next level where it really has to take a big leap to get the funding, get the sponsors. And um, it takes much more work than um the work that we put in, you know, we, we really just kind of laid a groundwork. Um, but this next, what the girls are going through right now is just, it's really, it's, it's hard because I, I don't know that there is one solution. You can't just work hard and make it happen. Um, it requires money and funding and television rights and, you know, so much more than we ever had to think about, uh, while these girls are still toiling away on the national team. So, um, I don't envy these girls and try to, you know, support uh, the current generation as, as much as we can, you know, the girls of, of my generation. Um, But it's not easy um, because it has, it is bigger than just us now. I think so many people now appreciate women's hockey and have ideas about where it should go and where, what should happen to it. um, That it has the snowball effect of including so many different people's ideas and opinions and things like that. So um, it's exciting and it's an exciting time, but, uh, I'm glad that I was there at maybe more of a simple time and an easier time, um, within women's hockey. It, and that, that makes sense. And it, it's been fun to watch it grow. I mean, I, I love NHL all-star weekend for the all-star skills competition. I've always loved that, but now that they're including, you know, the Olympic, the women's Olympians, it, to me, that just makes it even better because we're seeing, individually you know head to head they're just as good uh you know and it's just it's even more fun when some of the women's players get better scores uh <laughs> you know that, yeah you know i think back to when fun. we first uh in in salt lake city we started to play against the local uh boys teams the midget teams and um you know the games we would win some of the games the boys would win probably most of the games and then by Torino in that same league in the AAA boys league, we we're winning most of the games and they were winning some of the games. And then in 2010, the girls were winning almost all the games. And then in 2014, yeah. they were playing the junior teams and winning just kind of some of the games. So it's amazing the trajectory that it has gone over in that time frame too. And thinking back to like in 2006, we were playing boys AAA hockey Um and winning most of the games. And we had people like Megan Augusta, who's only 17, like she's their age and she's mm-hmm. on our team, um, could quite easily play with the best players in the world that went on to become NHLers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a different game for sure. There's uh, without the contact, it, it makes for a different thought process on the ice. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you're right. The skills, when they go head to head, it is amazing to see that. Yeah. They've been working their entire lives, just like the guys. And, while they don't necessarily have the same physical attributes, they can do those skills just as well. Well, and it's so fun to see somebody like Kendall Coyne and her husband, who is an NFL Super Bowl champion, and they try, you know, he'll 
get on the ice and try and do some of the stuff or even mm-hmm. some of the off ice stuff. And he's like, I can't do it. <laughs> you know, it yeah. just, it shows the true athlete in that instance, you know, but you mentioned on how the, the game, the players have just gotten better and better over the years. You know, I know for us, as we were coming up, you know, goalies world magazine was out there for a while. We could order instructional VHS tapes and, you know, watch the same thing over and over and maybe there was a summer goalie camp we could go to. That was like the best we could do. Otherwise, it was just we were left to ourselves watching NHL goalies. I, I often think for myself, you know, if I were growing up now with things like YouTube, uh, year-round goalie clinics, uh, Sense Arena, stuff like that, where would my game go? Mm-hmm. You know, what could I do? Now, that path is still the same, but it's what, you know, how, how could I have done, but for somebody like yourself, the, the women's game is so much different now because there's girls teams everywhere. You know, here in Minnesota, we have the girls high school state tournament now that they're, you know, almost selling out the XL energy center, just like the boys. There's so many more opportunities. Do you ever think about if, if you were playing today, um, you know, how much different would that trajectory trajectory be yeah I mean it's interesting when I start when I at my hockey school it's just how how good the kids are you know and I run a goalie school I just took the uh hockey Canada skill certificate uh goaltending skill certificate so it's a three-day course through hockey Canada and you get to talk nothing but goaltending which is amazing um but you know seeing all the newest latest gadgets and everything and um you know I only stopped playing professionally in 2018. So I I played until the age of 42. And what was amazing during that career was, like I said, we started with skate saves and I ended with, you know, RVHs. And so what your body had to kind of go through and morph through and the different muscles that were being used. And so I had a um, goalie coach that I actually only found later in my career. I'd never really had one with the national team. Um, and I was listening to uh, Kyla's interview on Tendy Talks the other day and how she talked about going to the library to check out books. Yes. Um, that's what I did. I would go and check out the books. And um, the one at my library was Vladislav Chechak. And so I would follow along with what he was doing in the off-ice training and all that. Um, but you know, in my career, I had to learn all those new things. And that's why I'm always amazed at goaltenders that kind of went through that, that era. Um, somebody like uh, Henrik Lundqvist, who, mm-hmm. you know, really had to change his game. And when I go to see my coach, uh, you know, their group sessions. And so there'd be 10 year old kids on the ice with me doing the skills better than me. Uh, and you had to be okay with, and Kyla talked about this in her interview too. You had to be okay with not being the best at something you had to be, you know, you had to have this mentality of, you know, I'm, I'm just willing to learn and I I'm willing to change because I know the game is growing and I know this is better. Um, but it would, you know, to do, to do a post lock for me, like to get my, to get my pad on the post and get my foot in the right position, I mean, it, it took me an entire summer to get just to be able to get that movement down, to be able to push off the post and to be able to lean into the post. And, you know, I felt like I just learned how to do a VH. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my gosh, this is switching all over again. And now we're into an RVH. And um, so 
you know, I think throughout my career, I never felt like I was, um, you know, the best at a skill. I think what my skill was, was in the actual game, but that I was will, I was always willing to learn and to just go over it and practice it. And um, so, you know, a lot of these uh, new things, we, I never had the, the sensory, um, the uh, VR, yeah. that yeah. looks amazing. Um, but I feel like I kind of lived most of it. Like some of it in the last maybe two years is, is kind of new. Um, but I do feel like a, a certain part of it is a little bit overwhelming. So like for the young kids, yeah, they all come in with this uh, great ability to slide and to move. Um, but there now is uh, so much onus and pressure on parents to get them extra goalie sessions to uh, make sure that they're in the camps and to make sure they have all the gadgets. And if they don't have the latest gear, they're, you know, how are you going to be as good? And so I feel like for you and I of a different generation, we didn't have to live that, you know? Right, and right. so a certain part of that simplicity, I wish was still in the game um, because now everybody just has this higher level. You know, it isn't necessarily about your, um, your athleticism or your, your hard, you, you can't just kind of hard work your way out of something. You need to actually be working with the goalie coach and doing video and uh, watching uh, goalies on YouTube. And you need to be doing all that just to be at that level. Mm-hmm. Whereas for you and I, if we were able to do one of those things, you can get yourself to that next level and get yourself to the next level. So yeah, I think it's a lot on young kids. It's a lot of pressure and um, it's uh, it's certainly, it's a different game. It's a game where you're, you know, you're on the ice and your your hips and your knees and there's just a lot more uh, stress on the joints than I think we ever had. And um, so, yeah, you know, where could my game have, have gone in the last couple of years, I guess, if I had had these things? Um, I don't know. I, I think it... Uh, I'd bring back the two pad stack is what I would do. Yeah. I, I try and do it every week in the beer leagues. I, I usually nice. get one or two out there and uh, I, I've been playing in my league for a couple of years now. So and it's the same teams year after year. So they're not even phased by it anymore. They're just like, Oh, there he goes again. Um, do you do any goalie sessions? Like do you go learn still? No, because it's, there really aren't any here in the twin cities area for beer league goalies. Uh, one of my college teammates, he runs a pretty successful goalie uh, clinic here in the Twin Cities, Devonair Goaltending. Um, Maddie Rooney works at it in the summertime, and I've been pushing him to have a uh, beer league clinic. What if you just summertime. went with the kids? I feel like I always just went with the kids. Well, Even though it, I was a, a pro goalie, I was just out there after school, their school time ended. It was at four 30 every day. So I, I think that would be a lot of fun, especially as I'm getting new modern pads where it's like, I mm. have to learn how to do the butterfly slide with new pads. Cause I yeah. can't do them with my current ones. So it's like, I might have to do that, but it, um, last week's episode with Adam Carlson, he coaches with my buddy, uh, Ryan. And I, I floated the idea by him. He's like, I'm totally on board for this but his idea is we need to have it at like a resort on Malax Lake and <laughs> you know have maybe integrate a little bit of golf and that way you know once the ice sessions are done there's maybe okay all right I'll bring the female goalies you bring the male goalies and yeah it'll just be a big party I, 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 yeah. I think there's a market for the beer league goalie weekend camp we call the it weekend. a camp yes right the, you the have goal- sparked my mind I'm gonna Let's start to plan it. Yeah, I, I, I am all for it. Uh, I don't. You just got to get I, the shooters. That's the only thing that would be 
got enough, got enough shooters. You know, if we promised them half price beer, I think they'd be down. Uh, <laughs> um, but e- even the golf aspect, I'm not a golfer, but I'd be down for it with a bunch of goalies. Cause it's not like we're going to keep score anyway. <laughs> um, Mm-hmm. I want to be mindful of time. Knowing you listen to Kyla's um, episode, you know I, I end with a list of 10 rapid-fire questions. They're the same questions I've asked every single guest from Bantam goalies to uh, fellow Canadian gold medalist Eddie Belfour. Um, so th- they're the same questions, and that's what I like about them because you get a lot, so many different answers from uh, all these goalies. And the first one is what's the craziest coaching moment from your playing days of coach. I, I always think of uh, uh, a Blackhawks game I went to and Mike Keenan was coaching for the Florida Panthers and he lost it and he's throwing sticks on the ice at the referees, you know, craziest coaching moment like that. Yeah. I, I would say within women's hockey, we don't have as many crazy coaches, <laughs> uh, but we did have an incident when I was in a national championship and um I was actually not playing in the final as the coach that played the, the Fairsies uh, yeah. back and forth. And I had played the provincial final. So it wasn't my turn to play the national final. And um, he was talking to one of the players on the bench and he got hit uh, in the face uh, with a pot, with a slap shot. And it didn't, it got hit right here and it didn't in his uh, uh, eyebrow for listeners uh, and it didn't burst. So it just got bigger and bigger <laughs> and bigger. And he just, you know, he was so focused on the game and I am the backup goalie and I can see this thing growing on his head. And it just, it got to the point where it was like half a softball size, you know, it was like elephantitis almost on the side of his head. And, um, I finally had to be like, uh, Ken, like there's something on your face, you know? And anyways, he got rushed to the hospital and, um, it was a huge hematoma and, in there so that might have been the craziest like coaching moment of him like being like no 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 I'm fine I'm fine I'm like no there's like a whole nother head on the side of your body um so yeah we don't have any like I don't think I have any like terrible coaches that (laughs) threw things on the ice or anything like that well the letter Kenny coach come into the locker room kicking the garbage can (laughs) yeah of which I just did an appearance on letter Kenny that's funny that you mentioned that oh fun I'm I'm gonna have to season nine Mm-hmm. I'm waiting for that one to come out. It's funny you mentioned that story because there was a video where it was, you know, soccer versus hockey and they show the soccer coach. There's a paper airplane coming down from like the third deck. It hits him in the head and he goes down like somebody shot him. And then they have a clip of Joe Quenville getting hit with the puck on the bench and it draws blood and he just laughs, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But uh, the other one was, I think it was my junior year we were in Spooner, Wisconsin for a game. It was my birthday. I remember that. And uh, I was the number three goalie, so I didn't dress. So I'm on the bench and there's a slap shot that comes right at our bench. The backup goalie who dressed standing in front of me hops out of the way and the puck hits me right on my knuckle. Like, and me being stupid it was just a natural reaction because it was my blocker hand to go like this to knock the puck out of the way too so um but I pulled my choppers off and it's just like the blood blister getting bigger and bigger and there's nothing more embarrassing than having to go to the visiting team's bench to talk to their (laughs) trainer trainer 
for an injury when you're the backup goalie who didn't even dress. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So I, I, I try to remember, I think she just took a needle and like popped it and then like put a bandage on there. So it was like, yeah, I, I'm the third string goalie in street clothes. Having yeah. To Probably all your other crazy stories though, from most of the guys, um, yeah, that's probably why we need to change the culture in hockey. <laughs> yeah. It's probably because of a lot of those other stories. So, yeah, but it was just, it's like, really, I'm, I'm the one that has to get attention. I'm not even, I didn't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that's not even a, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like, like I we've all been there where you're just embarrassed. You're like, yeah. I'm not even playing. I, I didn't even touch the ice for warm ups yet alone <laughs> the game. Yeah. And I got to get medical attention. Um, so, my next question is what's your favorite all time goalie mask? Um, what's my favorite one? Hmm. Good question. You know what? My first, uh, st- like my own personal Stanford one, uh, I actually painted in an art project class. Um, and interestingly enough, we never got free, uh, national team masks. And so I had the helmet when I first joined the, the national team and then I got to use, one of the June team's math, but didn't get to keep it. And then my first one I got to keep, um, I had to repaint over three or four times. So I only actually have ever had two masks in my career, which um, is not very safe now, obviously, right. now that we know that. <laughs> um, but in terms of NHL masks, um, good question. I, I I mean, the iconic Eddie Balfour, um, the Ken Dryden, maybe the Ken Dryden. Mm-hmm one with the circles yep. you know when yeah. I think of like what is an iconic mask um you know I the Terry Sawchuk one with the um scars is uh one that I think most people think of when they think of goaltending yeah um yeah. but some really cool uh women's ones of recent um I think what they can do with their uh with their helmets is is amazing and mm-hmm. uh, all the extra stuff that they can get on there is pretty special so yeah um, I don't know if I have a favorite women's one that I've seen lately that uh, they're all just, they're so intricate. Um, so yeah, let's go with Eddie Balfour or Terry Sacha. Yeah. Th- those are good ones. And I, I, I liked um, Todd Miska who painted Eddie Balfour's masks. Um, his son is playing for in the Colorado organization now. And last mm. year he was playing for the uh, Colorado Eagles in the AHL. So he had the Balfour Eagle. And I, oh, I'm sitting cool. there going, if anybody should and could wear the Eagle mask, it would be him because yeah. his dad's the one that painted it. And now this year he's uh, got a, uh, if you remember Manny Fernandez's Minnesota wild mask, which was kind of like the, it was the wild, I think it's a bear. I don't know what their logo really okay, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was kind of the mouth open. Well, he's got that oh, yeah. uh, in um, Colorado colors. And it just, it looks oh, cool. so cool uh, because that was another mask that his dad painted. So I think it's kind of, cool. I love the ones these days that have the, uh, where you can see that like the fake hair and ears, yeah. you know, and the old school helmet, I, yeah. like the amazing things that you can do with that are pretty incredible. Yeah. Todd, Todd was actually the first one to do that. Uh, oh, cool. Steve, he did Steve Shields mask when he had that um, stitch mask done and yeah, th- those are great too. Uh, so the next question, what's your favorite rink that you've played at? My favorite rink. There's only um, a few to pick from, right? 
I know. I think my favorite all-time rink is the Norbury Community Center in Winnipeg, which is uh, the one I grew up on, out- outdoor rink, and the one I always go back to at Christmas and uh, whenever I'm in Winnipeg. And, you know, for me, that, that's usually what it is, too. You know, a lot of us have skated at, you know, the bigger arenas and whether they have fans in them or not, they're really cool. But it's usually that one you, you got your start in where there's that sentimental, yeah, you know, for sure. you, and, you know, people ask me at the Olympics, like it must be hard to play in front of so many people. But really, Olympic Games don't have that many people. They tend to be in um, like in Salt Lake. It's at mm-hmm. the, um, you know, there tend to be AHL ranks or junior ranks. And then one whole side is filled with media. So, you know, people are not right on top of you like they are in NHL rinks. And it was really special to get to play um, in NHL rinks and have them packed for women's hockey. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, um, that was really neat. Uh, so, I, you know, those moments will last for an eternity, but they're not the same as that first rink that you played in, right? Yeah. Well, th- those first rinks you play at, you can almost close your eyes and smell the mm-hmm. smells of that rink, you know, and even for me, the Southwest Ice Arena is where I played. Um, and each locker room had its own smell almost. Where in Minnesota do you live? Or uh, I, I, I grew up in Chicago uh, and then I met the classic story, met my wife in college and she was from Minnesota. So we stayed in Minnesota, but I'm just outside the Twin Cities. If you've ever watched the movie Fargo, White Bear Lake, go Bears. Uh, (laughs) Growing up in Winnipeg, we used to always play down in Minnesota. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, In fact, my sister, uh, or not my sister, my wife, when her brother got LASIK surgery, he drove up to Winnipeg to get it done. Well, he couldn't drive home by himself. So my wife drove up to Winnipeg, he got his LASIK done, and then the next day they drove home. So she's like, the one and only time I've been to Canada was Winnipeg, and it was over. (laughs) (laughs) Well, whenever I'm talking to Americans that don't know where Winnipeg is, I just say, well, we used to go cross-border shopping to Fargo, just to put it in perspective. So yeah. Yeah. But well, I also heard in one of the podcasts that you were uh, potentially moving to Nashville, but you're not moving. Yeah, we, we were considering it. Um, never been there, neither of us. Um, but we were just like, hey, it, it it's an adventure. And But um, we're in a really good school district and to find a comparable one, it just wasn't working out. So we said, hey, our kids are, you know, freshman in eighth grade. We can wait five years and then... Then well, one of my good friends from the national team, um, she moved, she met a guy from Nashville, got married. Um, and so she runs the Predators, uh, girls hockey in Nashville. Very cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. There's quite the hockey scene down there too, which is, is. yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, as we're talking about it, my wife did stuff. She's like, are you okay? Like moving down there with hockey is like, oh no, I've already been in touch with bones. And he said, he's he can help me get on a team and ice time and everything else. And yeah. she's like, okay, so you, you've gone a little further into this than I thought. I was <laughs> like, yeah, I, I know where each rink is, um, you know, so we're, we're good. <laughs> we're good. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're not moving yet. We, we got about four and a half, five years before, before that happened. So we're, we're going to go down there a couple of times and check out the areas we like. And yeah, well, my there. husband loves it. And my friend Delaney Collins um, is there and loves it. So yeah um, eventually when you guys retire to Nashville yeah and you know who knows we, we might go somewhere else you know we, we've been to Arizona a couple times we love the area but it's like do we want to live here year round and only see brown because you know I'm from Chicago she's from Minnesota we have 
seasons. Te- technically yeah. four seasons, but it's more like 37. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, so we like to see the foliage change every year. Nashville mm-hmm. does get snow. We, we did see it's on average four inches mm-hmm. a year. And our kids are like, seriously, that's it. Uh, but, you know, that'd be enough. I, I don't, I don't need to keep shoveling. Uh, right. So I, I'd be okay with that. So I don't know. We'll, we'll keep looking. We'll see where we wind up. But nice thing is we both have jobs where we work remotely. So where, wherever we live, it, it does, you know, isn't job dependent. We, we mm-hmm. can up and move whenever we want. Right. Well, that's uh, great. Yeah. So where, where were we? Next question. Favorite youth hockey memory. This is one that usually has some good responses. Yeah, I mean, so many great youth hockey memories. Uh, in Canada, we call it minor hockey. Um, yeah, favorite one. I don't know. You know, I I used to love playing mini sticks in the hotel lobbies. Um, so I think it was, you know, the time away from the ice um, mm-hmm. for me. And, you know, being the only girl on, on boys teams, uh, they all kind of treated me like their sister. And so, you know, I really felt like because they included me in some of those extra games, I really felt like I was a, a part of the team. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think all those tournaments and, um, you know, all those times where I didn't have to prove that I belonged, that they mm-hmm. accepted me just for who I was. And, um, they were uh, my fiercest allies. And I'm so thankful because I could have had any guy along the way, I'm sure, could have made my life miserable. Yeah. Uh, but none of them did. And I just, you know, I, I know so many of my peers that were forced out of the game because of miserable experiences. And um, while I had some miserable people, they tended not to be my teammates. And my mm-hmm. teammates tended to be the ones that uh, supported me the most. Well, there was that story out of uh, Pennsylvania this week that we're recording Mm -hmm. of that girl that's playing on the boys varsity team and the the things that were said to her by the opposing fans are just terrible. And it's like, where where were the parents to put an end to that? I I just, I don't get it. Um, Well, it's, you know, the mob mentality. And I think that those of us that have been in the game that, you know, have been, um, different in any way whether that is uh skin color uh sexuality gender um those stories don't surprise us and yeah i hope we get to a point where those stories surprise you know we should we should nobody should ever have to live those and it's unfortunate that so many people still have to do that in 2021 like crazy yeah it it just uh, i read that and i was like you gotta be kidding you know what where were the parents, you know, of, the, of these kids, not only of the, the kids that were doing this, but where were the parents that were at the game uh, to do something? Yeah. Like it's just, well, I, I and even just it. peers, you know, it, like I said, I think it's that mob mentality mm-hmm. that it's, um, you know, you, the person beside you is doing it and you just, you kind of get wrapped up into it. And so, you know, it comes down to, um, you know, really taking a hard look at yourself. And I'm sure that 95% of those people in those stands regret their decision for doing that mm-hmm. or for being in that situation and saying those things. But at the time it seemed like that's what everybody's doing, you know? And um, so we need to change that culture within yeah. hockey that allows that to be okay. Now you, you talk about the peers and I, I just had a uh, memory of my son's baseball season this year and him and a few of the other boys, they like to wear their pants high and have the stirrups 
And the one kid was talking about the high pants and referring to them as knickers. And this other kid next to him hadn't heard the term before and misheard him. And his eyes just got real big. He looks at him, he goes, Chase, you can't say that. And he goes, what? And he goes, well, you just said, like, that's not okay to say that anymore. And I had overheard enough of it. I just started laughing. I go, no, it's okay, no, buddy. Not what he, said. He, he said knickers, which is short for knickerbockers, like the New York Knicks basketball team. It's an yeah. old reference bloomers. to pants. Like bloomers, yeah. Yeah, and he's <laughs> like, oh, I, I, I thought he said, you know, the word we can't, we shouldn't be saying. And I was like, mm-hmm. I appreciate it. Well, good, way. but yeah. good for him to stand up, you know, and right. to say it. Right, and, like, and that, that's what I told him. It's like, good for you for, you know, thinking that's what he said and saying something about it, not just being quiet. But of course, mm-hmm. you know, we got a big laugh out of it afterwards. And I was telling his mom and dad, and they just started laughing. And they're like, but the, there was some pride in the fact that, you know, yeah, he, he, stood he, did, up. he did what they would want him to do in that situation. And that's, uh, you know, it's not always easy. You know, no. you know it's, um, yeah. So, yeah. So the next question, what's your favorite stick that you've ever used? Hmm. You know what I loved uh, was the when the TPS Louisville came out first with rubber on the handle. Oh, yeah. And now it's, you know, it just is ingrained in most of them that you have some sort of grip in there. But that was like revolutionary that it yeah. had this. And it was like kind of taped on, uh, mm-hmm. like it was on there, but it was kind of taped on and extra. And um, when those came out, I felt like that that's really that's my iconic stick. To yeah. me. I, I fell in love with that stick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember those. And if I remember right, that one almost had like a, I don't know if it was rubber or something, but like a reinforcement on the splines of the paddle too. Yeah, that's where I'm talking about. Like that's like it was um, almost like pulled over and then just kind of like taped. Um, yeah. Then it became kind of more part of the like a, like a rubberized paint almost afterwards, but initially it was just like pulled over. Yeah. But it had like that rubber grip at the top of the paddle too. I, I remember that stick. I never mm-hmm. used one, but I remember it. And, uh, yeah. I, I actually, Trevor kid did it. And so I, I thought it was a great idea, you know, the tape on the top and bottom part of the paddle. And then mm-hmm. Louisville mm-hmm. came out with that stick is like, I should be buying that stick, but I yeah. I loved my crit. No, I was using Cooper Bauer reactor fives at the time, which is my all time favorite goalie stick. Mm, um, gotcha. So, yeah. Well, so this, I mean, once these came out, uh, like the, this stick, this mm-hmm. is the Bauer stick. Um, I mean, the lightness and the ability to shoot with them was just, I mean, ridiculous. Like I said, you, the fact that you didn't have to rely on how wet the stick was or how <laughs> good your shot was going to be. Yeah. Oh, I, every time I talk to somebody who's used a Christian goalie stick is like, I can tell if you actually use a Christian goalie stick, if you have the memories of putting the glue in the heel and the vice overnight to get a few more, you know, you a, yeah. games out of it. And they're like, Oh God, absolutely. Everybody I know had to do that. We actually um, went to the Christian plant. What's the name of the town in Minnesota? That is in Everett. Yeah, Evelyn is where the Christian plant was, I think. But is that near War Road? Yeah, War Road, Evelyn, they're all up in that area. Roso's over there. Uh, Just a great hockey communities. Mm -hmm. Um, I I worked at a rink in high school, and there were two brothers that grew up in Evelyn, and they talked about, you know, playing high school hockey with Frank Bismarck, um, Mm -hmm. Mr. Zero, and yeah skating the sidewalks to school in the winter and it's like well, it's funny. Uh, 
they, they grew up in the true golden age of uh, high school, you know, hockey and Eveleth at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the next question, best chirp you've heard on the ice, off the ice, in the locker room, uh, directed at you, not directed at you. <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, the poor girl that suffered this week in uh, Pennsylvania from a whole crowd yelling at her. I had that on several occasions. Um, and some terrible, terrible things that an entire crowd yell at. Um, and to say that some of those were pretty terrible, but they were so terrible that they would make me laugh. You know, like it, yeah. it never really got under my skin, but the things that they would uh, call me or the jokes and just the fact that you can have 5,000 people yelling the same taunt yeah, <laughs> was yeah. always amazing to me. So yes, I would say that I had some terrible things uh, yelled at me. Um, you know, everything you can imagine that uh, should never be yelled at women. Um, so yeah, not repeatable on air. I was never <laughs> necessarily one to um, uh, to chirp. And I always felt like I never wanted to make the uh, the opposition mad uh, because I always felt like that would just fire them up and let a light something under, under their belly. And I didn't want to do that. So um, yeah, I would say that I, I wasn't much of a talker. I mean, I was a talker out there, but I wasn't much of a negative talker. Or yeah. Chirper out there. Yeah. S- same here. Every now and then, at least in the beer leagues, there, there's those guys that you, you just know they're out there having a good time. And last night was one of them. The guy was in front of me trying to scream me and I, I just tapped him on the back of his leg, like, Hey, I'm right here. You know, I, I see you. And he turns around and he goes, that was you, wasn't it? And I go, it could have been worse. I, I, I could have gone uh, wah on you. So then next time he's in front of me, I just lightly tapped, you know, the inside of his leg a little bit higher. And he goes, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that's probably the worst I've gotten with chirping on the ice. Usually if I'm chirping, it's my own teammates uh, that I'm picking on. <laughs> Nice. But th- that, that's usually how hockey is. You know, I, I've said it before. Um, hockey players, you know, you fit if they're picking on you and the worse, worse they are picking on you, the more you're accepted. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I know you're not much of a beer drinker, but what's the worst post-game beverage I'll say that you've had? The worst one I've had? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Well, this one of my new rec hockey teams that I now play on the Honey Badgers, um, they have, well, not in the pandemic or post pandemic, but prior, there was always somebody that had to bring uh, drinks afterwards and snacks. And when you get women in their 40s, 50s and 60s, drinks and snacks are very different. So yes, a full table with tablecloth and sometimes <laughs> champagne and orange juice, it could be Tim Hortons and Bailey's. I mean, just the <laughs> amount of effort that goes into these beverages. So all of those have been amazing, but it is certainly very different than any other um, <laughs> offer. It's funny because playing a uh, national team for so long, um, you know, we, you don't drink in the dressing room after. So, so when I joined beer league hockey, you're going to laugh about this. My first beer league team, I was playing forward and it came up to my time to bring the beer. And, um, so my husband's a a beer drinker, but I'm not a beer drinker. And so, you know, but I want to, like you, you want to impress your teammates, right? So 
go out and I, I get like a bunch of different beers because I don't know what people like and I'm kind of new to the team so get a bunch of different like flavors and stuff and um anyways I don't refrigerate it so I don't even think about it and so you know I just have it and I bring it in a little box like it comes from the beer store and afterwards I'm like guys look what I have it it's all just warm beer <laughs> And so that became my nickname on that team, Warm Beer. Yeah, see, it's funny because most of the goalies I talk to, they're like, "Eh, it doesn't matter what it is. If it's warm, it's bad. Yeah, I know. As long as it's cold, it doesn't matter. It's good. I didn't even think about it. So I'm terrible beer league player. Lesson learned, right? Right. Lesson learned. Ever since then, it's been cold. It's been cold and it's been like frigid. I make mm-hmm. sure like, it is refrigerated. It is in double coolers and it is in my hockey bag. So <laughs> my, my grandma would have loved that beer because she grew up in England where they like to drink their beers at room temperature. Right. And we, we took a family trip there in 96 during the Atlanta Olympics. And when we walked to the corner pub, you know, they, they knew we were coming because of my uncle. Um, but as soon as they heard the accent, they, bar owner knew that you know Americans like their beer cold so they asked my dad that first night because we were there for I think two weeks you know what kind of beer are you going to be drinking and he, so he tasted a few he's like yeah this is the one I like so they made sure to keep a couple cold for him and when they pull one out they would put another one in so he had cold beer the whole time and oh, that's nice. um, yeah my they, they, they were a lot nicer to my dad in the two weeks we were there than it sounds like they were ever were to my uncle because on the last night uh you know, they gave him a couple pint glasses and a bar towel and everything. And my uncle looks at the bar keep and he goes, you know, all these years I've been coming in. The only thing I've ever gotten was a boot out the door. And she looks at him, she goes, and you keep it up, you'll get another one. <laughs> uh, she, she reminded me of the barkeep from the uh, TV show, Ted Lasso. Uh, just oh, yeah. Th- yeah, same personality, awesome. j- just like that. It, it was fun. In fact, I still remember the first night we walked into the... Um, I call it night because it was probably three o'clock in the afternoon, but we had just gotten there. So to us, it was probably 12 o'clock at night. And I had an Eddie Belfort jersey on. There was this old fella at the end of the bar and he saw it and started talking hockey. He's a big hockey fan. He followed the British leagues at the time. And so every night we went in, he was there and we would sit there and talk hockey. And my aunt and uncle came about a year or two later and he sent me a, uh, jersey from one of the local teams which was really cool oh that's cool that's really neat yeah so next question and this seems to be a very polarizing one with goalies when you take when you tape your stick do you go heel to toe or toe to heel Mm, i don't really care (laughs) (laughs) see i i I I would say that i probably would go from uh toe to heel for most of the time but I, I certainly would not care if somebody else was to tape my stick or, you know, in the moment. Um, yeah, there yeah. to me, it just, it's being very picky. Uh, it's not like we are stick handling and it matters that much. Right. Well, you know, the ones that have said they typically go toe to heel do play the puck more Connor Beaupre, um, Don Beaupre's son. He said he very much is toe to heel because he likes to play the puck a lot and he feels the puck comes off it better. It's like, Hey, I'm going to take your work. So I'm terrible at it. Uh, so yeah, I, I typically go heel the toe because 
started playing in the days of wooden hockey sticks where you had to tape that heel because so many kids today don't even yes. tape the heel, but you had to tape yeah, that like this heel. This is actually a, this is a blade tape. So in the last probably five, maybe eight years of my career, I used blade tape. Okay. Um, and uh, loved it for its longevity. Yeah. And loved it for its ability to um, sort of cushion the puck. And I felt like I had more feel uh, with it. Um, and, uh, I was getting free sticks, so that made a big difference. <laughs> yeah. I- I'm surprised we don't see more goalies actually using the blade tape. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah it- I really like, I, I loved it for playing the puck. The thing that it, um, uh, it, it does, um, cushion the puck more, which, uh, it, you do have to get used to sort of how you kind of rebound control and everything but mm-hmm. I mean I loved it I I just felt like I got more feel from it and I could uh really direct the puck where I wanted to wanted it to go yeah so I, I guess know. yeah how do you stick the sticker on the that's that should be the question do you go heel to toe toe to heel or just stick the sticker on yeah or, or do you go from the center out <laughs> yeah you got to get all the bubbles out yeah uh n- now you've thrown a wrinkle into my question I'm gonna have to call everybody right? back yeah and get the- re-ask it yeah, uh, <laughs> you, you like it yeah now there's so many different um uh products too it's not just blade tape right you can get different manufacturers make the same thing so yeah well and even for you know like they've got butt ends and a couple other ones for the grip at the top i, I tried the butt end uh grip and i've been using one for i think three years now and it's great the only problem is i'm still using a foam core wood stick so they don't go on those sticks very easy like they do the composites it took me a little bit of a finesse to get it on there it was but you don't have to spend like half an hour just going around and around and around right right exactly and what was even better is the knob was the same exact size of the tape knob i would do so it was like yeah perfect yeah um but now it's three years old and starting to dry rot a little (laughs) bit but my stick's kind of at the end of its life too so it's like all right it lasted i'm happy with mm-hmm. that investment uh so we're almost done favorite number to wear and why so i wore number one most of my career um growing up uh i think of our generation there's two jerseys and you know there's either one or 30 or one or 35 one or 31 yep. whatever the the two numbers are so i wore uh, some of those through my career too I wore 30 and 31 I joined the team uh the goalies that were there already had the numbers in the 30s and the one was not was available so I took it uh but I did like how a small one on the back of a jersey kind of looked and sounded um Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until I even um you know I really thought about how that went together when I was at a golf tournament one time and um, Dennis Hall, who is Bobby Hall's brother, yeah. uh, was there and they had uh, a ton of NHL guys and some women and um, they were auctioning off our jerseys at the end of the night and Dennis Hall bought my jersey. And so I went over to him and I, you know, was really excited. And I, 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 you know, said, thank you so much for, you know, I think it was like $500 to the charity and um, thank you for supporting the charity. And Dennis Hall was like, who, who are you? I said, uh, I'm Sammy Joe Small. That's my jersey you just bought. I'm a goalie with the Olympic team. And he's like, oh, I didn't know that. And he had my jersey on backwards and it just said small and the number one. And he was just like pointing down. I was like, oh, I didn't know my jersey would be used that way. (laughs) 
<laughs> so ever since then, I'm like, oh gosh, what did I create? So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I did like up until that moment I really loved it <laughs> yeah <laughs> well but I, I would say my all-time favorite number was number 13 so every other sport I, I wore number 13 and had I been in the era where you could probably pick your own number I might have picked another number but uh because I had one for so long I kind of stuck with it so it's interesting that you, you liked 13 since so many people are superstitious about that number. Like in college, our I think coach. That's would, why I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Our Another coach wouldn't order the number 13 because he, he didn't like it. And um, yeah. Yeah. Oddly enough, that's my dad's favorite number too. <laughs> I think like, it, it lends itself to a certain type of person, I think. Yeah. I, I think so. That, that's a good point. So the, the last question I have is probably my favorite. What advice do you have for young goalies? So uh, generally what I tell young goalies at my hockey school is um, that, you know, it, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort, uh, but the goaltending can be really fun. However, um, goals are going to go in and that mm-hmm. we have all let in goals and uh, you and I are a fair share. I, I mean, for me, millions in my career, when you count practices and, and games and, um, and so to not allow that, that goal or that moment to define you, uh, but really to um, find a strategy to be able to bounce back from goals, from defeats, uh, from um, setbacks, because that lesson within goaltending is going to serve you the best for the rest of your life. So, you know, figure out how to um, look for that next puck and not dwell on the past, but really look forward. Uh, That doesn't mean you can't evaluate what has happened and that you can't learn from those experiences. However, uh, you can't let it define you. And um, you need to constantly be looking for that next puck and um, yeah, wanting that puck, wanting, wanting that shot to come, that next shot to come. As Ted Lasso says, be a goldfish. That's right. Exactly. Be a goldfish. Forget. Although important to learn, but you know, forget, yeah. move on, park it. You know, we had a sports psychologist that talked a lot about parking it. And, um, and for me, I used a lot of log booking and journaling, um, to allow myself to park it. Uh, after games, I would uh, recount how every goal went in, uh, what I could have done differently. And, you know, at times it was hard on myself, but I, I reserved that for after the game, not mm-hmm. for during the game. I tried to really just focus on that next puck. I told myself I'd deal with it later. Um, and so in that moment, you know, you're not letting one goal derail you uh, for the next shot or the next goal. And we've all seen goalies that are like that, that one goal goes in and that's just the end of the game. So yeah. um, really seeing each puck for its own entity. And um, yeah, it's always a new moment. Yeah. Great advice. You know, and I think all good goalie coaches, that's one of the first things they teach their goalies is you got to learn from it, but you can't dwell on it. You know, once, once that ref comes, gets the puck, you got to hang your head high because your team feeds off your emotions. And if you're standing back there with your head down, their head is down. You got to pop back up and, you know, you're as much of a leader back there for them. Yeah be a good role model, right? Yep. Yeah. And is, is my goalie coach used to tell us, even if you have to fake it, you got to put that smile on and show confidence, even if you don't feel it. Yeah. 
Well, that's some great advice. I like that. I've taken up way more time than I said I would. So I appreciate uh, you bearing with me. No Uh, problem. No, this has been really great. Yeah, it's it's been fun. Usually what happens when goalies are talking, you know, when I was talking to Kelly Rudy, you know, I think we were about 45 minutes in. It's like, we are going to go long. It's like, are you okay, Kelly? He's like, yeah, I'm good. I got beer here. You know, we're sitting there having (laughs) beer as we were talking. And um, I was talking to Kevin Woodley from in goal. And he was the one that looked at me and he's like, are you good at on time? Because if I know you've listened to Ingle and um, he's known for one last question and about 37 times. And right, exactly. That, that, one that, more question. Just one more question. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was uh, the, the conversation there. It wasn't quite long, <laughs> but it was, it was a fun conversation. So thank you for your time. It, it's been uh, a thrill talking to you. Uh, where, where can goalies find you on social media if they want to follow you um, as well? Yeah, so uh, thank you for asking. Uh, everywhere on social media, it's Sammy Jo Small, um, and it's S-A-M-I-J-O-S-M-A-L-L, um, including my website. Uh, anybody wants any more information about uh, how or where to buy the book um, that I just published in the pandemic, which is not always the easiest time to publish, uh, but the, the sales have been going really well, and I think, um, you know, it. Uh, it is really the story that can relate to all goaltenders. And um, so if you want any information where to get that, that's on my website, which is also Sammy Joe small. Um, and uh, yeah, that's about it. I, you know, I can never talk enough goaltending. So I so appreciate uh, you reaching out to me and I'm glad that we can connect in this way. And um, I think that uh, you're right. When two goalies get together, there just never is an end to the stories. <laughs> no, th- we just have all these similar uh, shared experiences yeah. that nobody else really gets except for us. And, so, you know, thank I, you for letting me to verbalize that. What I have found through doing the podcast is that's exactly the, the case is goalies understand goalies. And it doesn't matter what levels we've played at we all have the same stories. They're just at different rinks, Uh, same experiences. uh, And um, it's just fun. And, you know, as I tell every goalie of age, uh, if you're in the twin cities, let me know and I'll, I'll buy you a drink. Uh, And and we'll probably talk for four more hours. (laughs) Sounds good. Yes. Well, if I'm ever down at mall of America, I will give you a call. Yes. You know, it's funny you mentioned that when my wife and I got married, we got married here in the Twin Cities and all of my aunts in Chicago were excited because they're like, now we have a reason <laughs> to go there. They all flew in a few days early just so they could go there. Well, I and- swear, looking back at it now, like that's why we had tournaments there is for our parents, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And then you know, like those of us that live here are like, no, we avoid that place and you can't really say it this way anymore but it's like you avoid the mall of america like the plague like you do not mm-hmm. want to go there maybe christmas time because you want to do all your shopping at once but that's it yeah. <laughs> you know we we avoid it although they are talking yeah, but for all of us tourists we love it so. yeah they are talking of possibly expanding it um so we'll see how that goes crazy yeah they, <laughs> they want to add a water park even though there's one like right across the street so right why not yeah. Make it bigger, make it better. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, it's already got two hotels. I think it has now. So why not make it bigger? 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, well, thank you again. And, uh, you know, we'll be in touch. Yeah. And all the best to your kids too, as they, uh, navigate, uh, sports, school, life, all that stuff. And, uh, good luck to you and your wife as you figure out where you want to live for the rest of your life. Thank you.